This podcast is powered by SEM Wealth Management. SEM Wealth Management, where your faith, your values, and your investments align. Great day, everyone. Ed Dudley sitting over in Durham, North Carolina, and I'm sitting with my good brother, my friend, uh, Mr. Garland Scott. How are you doing today, sir? Ed, I'm doing great. Wonderful, wonderful day. Hey, just stepped off a football, high school football field. It's uh, it's not too bad, 92 degrees, uh, but I'm, I look forward to these Thursdays every single time. I um, hope you and Flo are doing well down in Durham. Yeah, so, you know, we're doing well in Durham, but, you know, we didn't take um, a five-day trip to Belize like you just did. <laughs> so, so, so I'm a little jealous. Um, I see you worked on your tan a little bit while you were gone. <laughs> it's not it's not hard to do down there. I tell you what, all four days they predicted rain, and the weathermen apparently are worse than the weathermen here. So they were wrong. We had sunny skies. It was between 80 and 90 degrees every day, nice wind off the beach. If you have not been to Belize, first of all, they need your money. Secondly, it's a, it's a wonderful getaway. Uh, it does not feel like Cancun or Jamaica or, or Barbados. It's much quieter, uh, but there's still a ton to do. So I highly recommend it. That's good. Well, I'm, you know, I am so excited to um, bring our guest in today. Do um, you remember the movie a few years ago, Hidden Figures? Yes. We actually have a hidden figure um, that we're going to bring into the show today. And I found out about the gentleman, I want to say, when I moved to Atlanta about 2013-ish, somewhere around there. And I just started doing my research on him. And I'm like, I was amazed. I could never get a hold of him because he had some amazing gatekeepers um, around him. But um, let's just bring him on. Um, sure. if, if you live in the Atlanta area in the financial industry, or if you ever worked for Merrill Lynch, you're going to know this name and this face when I bring them in. Mr. Gary Bridgman, sir, how are you? Good morning, Ed and Garland. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Gary, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, so what you missed before we brought you in was uh, Ed was in the Atlanta area. You're a legend in Georgia. You are a legend at Merrill Lynch. And I know you moved on to, to Greystone through Morgan Stanley after that. Uh, but it is truly an honor for you to, to, to be here with us and taking the time. So thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. Thank you both. Yeah. So, you know, the the whole purpose of this podcast, this show, is to highlight people of color and women and share their journeys. Because unfortunately, our journeys are just a little bit different than the traditional uh, person in finance. And we just want to hopefully land a story, a message that resonates with someone out there, especially minorities that are looking to either make a career transfer or someone young looking to get into the industry. 
Um, Garland and I always talk, we love the industry. It's been very well, done very well for our families and us personally. We meet amazing people such as yourself. But I'd love for you to just unpack your story as how you got into this industry. And I think it was a 35 year plus successful career. Oh, interesting question. Um, you know, my, my journey started actually as a kid, you know, how you kind of think about what you want to do as a young person and they want to be a fireman or a police officer, a teacher, something like that. I, I wanted to be a stockbroker. Uh, so it was kind of amazing that I actually ended up doing what I wanted to do as a, as a kid. In fact, I would chart and follow local stocks in the, in the newspaper. And I would try to understand why this uh, earnings report meant something or not, and why one penny meant so much because they were reporting earnings and pennies a share. What what is this? So that began my journey, and I always viewed uh, financial services as being kind of the top of the pyramid in ways, and as it related to a sales career. So I really wanted to to be in there. Uh, so I went to Indiana University. I grew up in Gary, Indiana. Uh, so it was kind of interesting in terms of uh, uh, mostly an African-American uh, environment. And I went to Indiana University, Bloomington, Indiana, and got a degree in business. Uh, so I got exposed to uh, finance there and really enjoyed it. And also marketing. I ended up as a marketing major, uh, which... I tell people that sometimes they view the profession as being something where you need to really have uh, significant financial skills, and you do, in uh, that uh, Wharton type education, University of Chicago, and places like that. You, I mean, it, it can't hurt you. But when you get down to it, uh, this is a marketing role. You're out trying to uh, develop clients and retain clients. And so I got a good, strong background in marketing. And then it was interesting and I couldn't find a job. Uh, I went back to Gary, Indiana after college. And, uh, Gary, uh, maybe we can do a separate video to talk about some of our cities uh, throughout the United States, but Gary was suffering uh, uh, greatly uh, from the economic uh, downturn that occurred in the mid seventies. So if you live in a place like Gary, Indiana, you also learn something about economics because those kind of places, industrialized cities, are on the front end of any kind of downturn. So even as a young person, you're kind of seeing uh, kind of something about the economy you've been exposed to. So couldn't find a job. So I traveled to Jackson, Mississippi to visit relatives. Uh, and all of my grandparents were alive. And I wanted to kind of get reacquainted. I had a brother, older brother and sister that had gone to college uh, there and I wanted to get reacquainted with them as well and I thought I was going to go and make my fame and fortune in New York City. I never saw myself as a, a southerner. Uh, in fact, when you grow up in the Midwest, the last thing you want to do is think about going to the South. <laughs> you don't think about that. Uh, so I got there and by, by the grace of God, it was the best thing that could have happened to me. Uh, Jackson was a place that uh, was uh, beginning its new future, right? It, uh, from its past, it was trying to figure out, you know, what are we going to do kind of going forward? Uh, so I came in at the right time and things uh, uh, worked for me uh, pretty well there. I would tell you that the first job I took in Jackson, Mississippi, 
keep in mind, I'm a poor guy. I came to Jackson with $200 in one suitcase and a college degree. So I didn't have much going on at the moment. So my first job was finding jobs for ex-offenders leaving the state penitentiary. Wow. Uh, and believe it or not, I had a very successful program. I was finding jobs for ex-offenders in the next downturn, and that brought a lot of attention to me uh, from the media. I recall leaving my office, and somebody from the press would be outside asking me about how am I finding all these jobs for ex-offenders. Uh, so eventually, I realized I needed to find a job for myself. So the second thing I did was uh, went to work for a defense contractor. You know, I uh, one of my hobbies is flying airplanes. I don't do it as much anymore, but I love the aerospace industry. Um, and uh, so I went to work for a uh, uh, a defense contractor that worked in the aerospace industry. And Merrill Lynch at that time, around the same time, had given me a conditional offer. I was only 23 years of age. They didn't really want to hire anyone that was 23. Back in those days, I, I guess he's changed a bit now. He needed to be 25, two children, two children and a wife. Uh, because we wanted to see that stability. Uh, so they asked me to work for a major corporation and then in two years, give him a call. Uh, so I, did, I really enjoyed the job at the defense contract, I have to tell you, uh, but I wasn't still making enough money to, to kind of make ends meet. And uh, was smart enough not to call uh, the manager myself after two years, I had my sister to call as a, <laughs> and a, and a high level uh, secretary, or as, as Ed was saying, as some kind of gatekeeper. I had my sister uh, to call and set up an appointment for me. And boy, when I walked in, I don't know what she said on the phone, but when I walked in, I was hired on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> and I became um, um, uh, Mississippi's first uh, African American registered representative. I didn't know that I was and didn't really care. I wanted to do what I was uh, uh, trying to do for my career uh, is to become a stockbroker. So Merrill had a, it was known back in those days for having an excellent training program. Uh, let me know where you, if you guys want me to stop at any place. Oh, go ahead. Keep going. Keep going. This is great. Thank you. So, so Merrill had an excellent uh, training program and I sat there and I tell you this reading the financial information, I felt like I knew so much uh, from going through that program. They had a long program. You ended up training uh, in New York for six weeks. Um, and you actually took the uh, securities exam in New York at the combination of the, uh, no, at the beginning part of the training. After the first week, they gave you kind of a cram course and then they uh, gave you the test. If you didn't pass, it kind of sent you home uh, after that. But that experience really was very good. And so that propelled me to, uh, to go back and, and really get my career going in, in Jackson. But at that time, uh, the trainers at Merrill Lynch in New York didn't think it made sense for me to go back to Jackson, Mississippi. So they actually encouraged me to stay in New York and take a job in New York. And here I am, a guy who thought I was going to live in New York anyway. But I was committed to. Uh, the person who gave me the opportunity, uh, you know, somebody hired me, so I was going to go back and fulfill that that obligation. And I went back. And back in those days, you were not a financial advisor; you were an account executive. Uh, so the industry has morphed in a number of ways. And I guess any young person that comes into it now 
will likely see it morph in, in God knows how many ways over the next 20 years. It has changed a lot. So our job in the beginning was purely picking stocks and making recommendations to clients. And we made a lot of money from people doing that. Then as the industry evolved, we became financial advisors, we became uh, uh, financial planners uh, and, and all of that. So the industry uh, really re evolved. So I had to kind of ask myself the question, well, Mississippi is 50th in per capita income in the country, right? And the social environment wasn't necessarily the best. Come on, uh, you know, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but I could kind of see that this is going to be a challenge, right? So how do you really make it work? So the number one export that Mississippi had back in that day was not cotton. It was his capital. They were moving money out uh, side of the state because they wanted expert management. They didn't really, the big money people in Mississippi weren't reliant on local people for managing the large dollars. So I started asking myself, well, what skill set do you really need in order to manage these large dollars? Well, back in that day, institutional consulting was a nascent kind of industry. Uh, IMCA, Investment Management Consultant Association, has just started like one or two years earlier. And it was 40 to 100 guys. And we go to these meetings and these guys were highly professional. They were talking about things that I didn't have a clue <laughs> about. I remember going to a meeting and I ended up having to make a presentation, ask me to make a presentation, performance report. This was long before we started incorporating performance measurement into our day-to-day -day processes uh, with clients, or at least every quarter we're generating these. So I had to make this presentation and I didn't know what I was talking about, but I did the best job I could. And that kind of helped me to uh, begin the process of understanding all of these things that really involve managing significant wealth. And I was early in the process, right? Because if you look at uh, IMCA, which is now Investment uh, and, and Wealth Institute, mm -hmm. um, uh, I, I think I was, uh, I was in the second class, the person's getting a SEMA designation. Uh, so very early on in the process, right? And, and that engagement enabled me to talk a different language to people than other financial advisors. So I looked up one day, I was the number one guy in the office and the number one guy in the state and later realized I was the number one guy in the country uh, as related to African-Americans, uh, which was surprising a lot of people and it brought a lot of uh, kind of a, attention my way. I ended up actually serving as president of the board YMCA uh, during, I think it was 2007, 2008, uh, you know, the choice years of having an assignment like that. Uh, and really just love kind of that whole body of knowledge uh, that kind of helped me to kind of propel my career because it's always, it always comes down to in the business that we're in, you know, kind of what you know and, and how you differentiate yourself from others. Right, so I was highly differentiated because no one else around me was doing anything like that. It enabled me to help other financial advisors uh, when they kind of came into a circumstance like that. So that partnering thing, which is now really big inside of the industry, was just being given birth back then. We we're finding ways to make it 
make it happen. Uh, so I had a uh, kind of very uh, good career. Those were the really, really, really good days, right? And it was the days that uh, Merrill would do these, uh, these trips. So based on your success, you were, they were giving you like uh, then Russia to Paris where the, the opera house was closed and they opened an opera house for us to have dinner. I mean, some fantastic trips uh, that we got out of that and the relationships that we built. So everybody was really uh, trying to do more and more and better and better business as time went, went along. So that, those were the good days, particularly going into 2008, I think after 2008, some things changed, you know, some adjustments were made. We didn't enjoy the same perks that we did uh, going into that. Um, but in, uh, let's see, when was it? Uh, 1998, I was the number one guy in the office. And, it, and Garland, you mentioned we don't want to focus too much on the bad, and I'm not going to do that either because there are some good and bad in anything you do, obviously. So let's, let's, let's pivot just one degree. Okay, so in 1998, you're the number one person in your office, and you're still in Jackson, Mississippi by then, still is. Or had you moved over to Atlanta at that point? This is an inflection point. That year was an inflection point. Okay. Uh, right in the middle of it, I moved to Atlanta. So let's talk about a couple things. Let's talk about the transition to Atlanta. Um, let's talk about, briefly talk about sort of the culture that you were in when you find yourself leading the pack uh, when you find yourself on top, as far as your, your numbers and your production is concerned, at least in the office and probably at that point in the state, knowing that uh, that, that minorities and, and in particular black men represent a very small segment of the industry, even now, but certainly then. Tell us about the perseverance part, right? We know how we know the landscape. We can have a whole hour's worth of podcast after that. We want to hear about the perseverance. Yeah. And you talked about inflection points. This might be a good pivot. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I guess in ways I'm a glutton for punishment. <laughs> okay. Uh, and I still, actually, the more difficult it was made for me, the more I thrived, honestly, uh, until the end in Jackson. Uh, because I realized that I don't care what level of success I had, I wasn't going to be getting given the, the treatment that was commensurate with that level of success. Uh, so that caused me to pack up and, and leave. And uh, Merrill Lynch had always wanted me to manage an office. Um, and I had talked about, I'm this urbanist, and this guy was always thinking about keeping downtowns and cities intact. Um, and I wanted to open an office for Merrill Lynch in downtown Atlanta. They didn't have one at the time. Uh, so I came over and I actually opened an office in Midtown because I couldn't really find the space that I wanted in downtown. It made sense. I opened an office uh, kind of across the street from the High Museum uh, and, uh, in Atlanta. And that was my version of a ultra high net worth institutional office. So I set a real high bar for FAs to come into that office. They really were special. Uh, so I had a small office that predated uh, private banking at Merrill Lynch. Okay. Uh, I, uh, 
you know, one of the things about having success is you, you've got to be running a half step at least ahead. Sure. Uh, and you got to find a way to do that. And I, for a long time in my career, I felt like I was running at least a half a step ahead. In fact, so I had this office. Now, I did, I did that for a while. So that, that gave me a new and different way of viewing our industry in the firm. I was still a producer. I never gave up my clients. And I had to, uh, Garland, I think, to your question, part of the complexity was that uh, you really don't move a book from state to state. Right. Uh, that's very difficult to do. And I was moving a book over one state to another state. Uh, but I kind of felt that, uh, remember I said their number one export was their capital, uh, that they would look at Atlanta as being the capital city of the South and not have too much difficulty. So I managed to keep about 98% of their book when I moved over. And it was the reason I lost 2% is because uh, the manager on my way out wrote a letter to all my clients saying, Gary is gone, but you don't have to leave. Uh, and he got that typical 2% response. Uh, and so he was able to keep 2%, but I, I managed to take the rest. And uh, so that's what got me to Atlanta. Uh, you know, I was number one. The guy who retired, who had been number one, uh, his book was distributed to the guys who were two and three in the office. And uh, you kind of clearly see, hey, wait a minute, this is not, uh, this is not, your day. <laughs> right. So, uh, but nevertheless, you don't let any of this stuff stop you. You know, I mean, you can sit and lick your wounds as long as you want, but you got to come up with a strategy of how do you keep moving yourself forward? Because that's what it's all about is moving forward. And uh, even though I came home that day and I looked at my new wife, we had only been married a year. And I said to her, let's leave. And thank God I married a woman who says, I'm with you. Uh, and, uh, we packed up and moved from here uh, to Atlanta. And she was very supportive of the move and uh, kind of created a uh, environment around me where I can focus on work. And uh, even to today, I don't have to focus on very much more. I, I tend to focus on the things that are important to keeping um, everything uh, moving in the right way. Uh, did I answer your question, Garland? You did. You surely did. I, um, I, go, go ahead. Go ahead. Go I was going to say, I was at, you know, you're you're moving from Jackson to Atlanta, and you're opening an office in Atlanta Midtown. Um, and as we know, part of managing is recruiting. How how did that go for you um, when we know there's not a lot of individuals that look like us, and here you are sitting in front of them and trying to recruit them and I, I'd love to know how your first recruiting meeting went. If you remember, also, let me I, let me I, ask I, this question I, too, Gary. Probably with that, you know, because as I mentioned, I set a high bar. So when uh, you set a high bar for something, people fight to kind of, you know, be seen in that light, to be seen as somebody who can actually uh, come into their world. So I set a high bar, and uh, I got the people I, I needed. Nice. Am I mistaken in, in 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 interpreting this when you said we were pre-private bank? No, you were pre-PBIG, if I can use an old acronym from Merrill. <laughs> is, is that correct? 
No, they Merrill wouldn't say that. They <laughs> <laughs> really wouldn't. No, they wouldn't say that, but I would say that. I would okay. say that what I was trying to do was something that Merrill Lynch later ended up doing. Okay. Uh, creating a private bank. And the private bank housed most of all of the institutional consultants. Sure. And I was kind of both. Uh, after I closed the Midtown office, I moved into the private bank and uh, worked there as a private wealth advisor and an institutional consultant. Um, uh, so, you know, it was exactly what I was trying to do in the branch that they ended up doing. I got you. Later on down the road, you do make, I think, one final move uh, to Morgan Stanley and, yes. and, to, and to Greystone. And so obviously for those that have, uh, have worked inside or around the wirehouses, we understand what Greystone is. But for those that may be listening that, that are not privy to that, can you kind of explain um, and I think you kind of already have building up into, you know, the private bank and institutional background at Merrill. But explain to me what Greystone is and and just how important it was to Morgan at the time and really still is and how exclusive uh, those Greystone teams were. Um, I worked with several in the Mid-Atlantic between Philadelphia and D.C. It's really big ones. So I know in my area uh, they weren't a dime a dozen. They were a dime a dozen. I should say they weren't a dime a dozen. They were very uncommon. Um, but probably even more uncommon was to have someone leading that group um, that, that has your background. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I, I think Greystone uh, and the institutional consulting business in general is as sharp as nice. the spear. Uh, you know, it's kind of where uh, a lot of things kind of happen uh, first. Uh, so after 34 years at, at Merrill, and Merrill, I guess I can say this on your program, Merrill just um, uh, settled a racial discrimination lawsuit in August of 2013. We remember, yes. I left in September of 2013. Gotcha. So you might be able to make a correlation there. Yeah. It just felt different for me at that moment uh, than to be able to have the same face I always had there, understanding that an organization uh, is admitting publicly that it had discriminated against people like me my entire career. Right. Um, it just felt different. And some other people left, a lot of people stayed, and I guess they were able to get over that. Uh, but for me, it was very difficult. Maybe there was some kind of way that that could have happened differently. Maybe they could have reached out and had more of a conversation. Maybe it was something that uh, resulted from the lawsuit itself where they couldn't have done it. But I felt really uh bad about that and uh so that other side of me started jumping up and down uh saying gary uh the institutional consulting business is really what you love um and as the imca president i had an opportunity really to get to see a survey the landscape in terms of who's what in the industry and have had a lot of conversation with the people at the top of those organizations one way or another. Uh, so I had come to feel, or, or, or at least in my mind, I knew that Greystone uh, was the best uh, representation of institutional consulting from the broker-dealer community. Uh, you can get in arguments that maybe there's others that can do it that are separate from broker-dealers, but I like 
the broker-dealer aspect of uh, what uh, that brought to the table versus what you would consider uh, some independent consultants. Uh, so Greystone represented that. In Atlanta, there was not a presence for Greystone at all. And so I was able to be a part of kind of helping to brand Greystone uh, in the Southeast. And I would tell you the tools that that organization has is, some, is, is unbelievable. The capabilities that organization has is, is, is just tremendous. And the, the consultants, I hope some of them get a chance to hear me say this, they're, they're some of the best, unquestionably some of the very best. Um, so it was a good move for me uh, to have seen that because sometimes you see the grass is greener on the other side. It wasn't a question of if the grass was greener. It was an opportunity for me to participate in that business. By the way, Merrill had primarily basically exited the business. I had to give up all of my public uh, account. You know, so any governmental entities, they no longer wanted you working with. So you actually had to give those accounts up. And that's, the, that's another tough thing you have to do. And I probably should have left uh, before that happened because I gave my accounts up to some Greystone guys, quite honestly, <laughs> in those accounts. And uh, uh, so I, I, um, I think uh, it was a smart thing for me to do. Uh, really enjoyed the time there. I really enjoyed my time at Merrill, honestly, uh, for many of those years. I don't want to suggest that I didn't. I really enjoyed uh, that place that Merrill, you you wear the underwear wear with a bull on it or something. You, you just that. <laughs> <laughs> that raging bull. That organization. I mean, it was a phenomenal place. That's so, so Gary, you know, looking at your distinguished career, and I started off saying that you're a hidden figure, and people that see this, they know why that you're a hidden figure. But can you look back over your 30 plus year career and say, there's one moment that was like really a highlight for you that you will always remember um, for the rest Ooh. of your life? Yeah, there were so many, you know, it's very hard to. Uh, well, go give, me, give me a couple. <laughs> I think, you know, the early days as you kind of grow and you get into your stride, uh, that gives you a, such a tremendous sense. But one time, um, you know, getting in the top one and two percent of Merrill Lynch's sales force is not the easiest thing to do. Uh, that raising bull, there are some people. Uh, there are some really good people inside of the organization that makes it very difficult for anybody to get in the top one or two percent. One time I was in the top 125, uh, and that made me feel good. Not that's when you were rewarded with a trip to Russia, St. Petersburg, and Stockholm, and places like that. I think getting to know, I chaired the diversity council for Merrill, uh, so I got a chance to always be around the senior management as a young person. I was an advisory council to Merrill Senior Management. So even as a as a very young financial advisor, I got the opportunity to be around those people and listen to the stories and understand what some of the complexities were in managing an organization like that and being in a position of trying to get my voice heard. You know, you're a young guy and you know, you're trying to be heard and you know, so fighting through, punching through, trying to make sure that what you thought made sense, uh, you know, made sense uh, that you got it expressed. Um, so I think it was more of those days. Um, 
I think winning some large relationships then I guess I could say the state of Mississippi was a client of mine at the end, or not to the end, I think in the early 90s. And I was able to maintain that kind of role uh, through different parties. The, the current governor, when he was state treasurer, current governor of Mississippi, was a client. So to have been in that position of, of seeing how people like that kind of uh, act and, and think through uh, matters, I think, was a uh, uh, was contributed greatly uh, to my satisfaction. There was another part of, uh, you know, you don't get to celebrate a lot of stuff in our industry, right? If you, you help somebody to get to a successful core, uh, retirement and they've got the income that they need, you did all the planning and they're there, you, no bells and whistles, no balloons, no champagne, nothing really happens. But you yourself know, wow. Look at this. And if you have a long career, you've seen some of those things where it happened just like you planned. So some of some of those kind of things. The other thing, uh, you only asked for a couple and I'm still going up. But, you know, we sold businesses. Uh, and if there was one area that I would work in now as a financial advisor, it would be aligning myself with those persons, that generation of folks that have to allow those assets to move to the next generation and it's going to result in some kind of liquidity event. So I was surrounded that kind of stuff and got to understand kind of investment banking in a way. So our industry, the way I view it is there's a language and you got to be able to, to use those languages to around business owners, uh, sell of a business is a language. Uh, uh, institutional consultants have a language. There's words, the terminology that are used there that probably institutional consultants know and others don't know. And then when you, you think about private wealth, particularly working around ultra high level, there's a language that comes in. So I would encourage advisors to make sure that they're learning these different languages. And they certainly need to be at least bilingual. Uh, you yeah. can't uh, function inside of that industry. Um, you didn't ask this question, but what you answer one. You can't, you can't function inside of that industry, just basically being average and allowing yourself to accept training that is given to you by these organizations. And that's it. You really got to build on that in a lot of different ways to get yourself to the top of the class, right? Um, so we had answered your question once I answered the question. Yeah. Myself. You definitely answered my question. And, you know, you started talking about, you know, uh, this, the state of Mississippi was one of your clients. My wife is from Mississippi, so I spent a lot of time in Mississippi. And to look back at their history of Mississippi, to see where they are as a state, and they're still going through some changes, to see a black man running uh, the state of Mississippi's money is huge, absolutely huge. So, um yeah, that, that right there said the chill chill through my body, just thinking about a lot of different things. Um, Garland, you got another question? Because I, 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 I can throw so many questions at Gary because uh, I've been enjoying this conversation. Garland, go ahead. What do you got? I, I Well, I'm going to respect Gary's time. And so if, if there's any, I want to ask a, more of a philosophical question. You were getting into it at the end. Um, and, and, and we talked about this before we hopped on, which was, we are going, my kids are now in this generation Z mode, right? The millennials are now aging and they're in their, you know, mid to late thirties. And now the, the young whippersnappers, if you will, the ones that are now in their 
early to mid twenties are coming through. So they're, you know, they're about at the age, Gary, when you were starting, you know, going from Gary, Indiana, and then eventually down to Jackson and over to Atlanta. But what would be some of the advice that you could give them? Because in many regards, from a societal standpoint, we've made great strides. And then the very next moment, it seems as if we have made no strides at all. Uh, I guess it's, it's day dependent. So some of the advice you probably are going to give them will be the same advice you might have been receiving in 1979. And then some of it may be very, very different. But if you can elaborate on, on you know, advice you could give to a young person now that you have the wisdom of your years, um, what would you say to that audience? That's a good question. I would say fully exercise themselves. And to begin by just uh, looking at the landscape in a very broad way, right? Because a talented uh, African-American today, at least in my opinion, uh, can kind of write their, their own uh, kind of uh, path, so to speak. They, they can do a lot. I would lean into entrepreneurship uh, to the best I could. Uh, when you think about 1979, there was not a lot of capital. Um, you know, my parents didn't have a Garland or Ed. Uh, I mean, they wealth, you guys have a, you're in a much better position than what my parents were in. So I couldn't go to mom and dad and say, can you provide seed capital for this brilliant idea? Nor I have the uncle or uh, others. And today, that exists. There's a lot more wealth around. I would say lean into entrepreneurship. That's certainly a way to develop uh, uh, wealth and control and abilities to be helpful to so many other people, right? Because now you're in command of the ship and you can determine how many people get on or get off that ship. Uh, so I would ask you uh, to lean in, in, into that. You know, back in 1979, you know, you just use somebody else's capital. So you went, uh, you went to work for Merrill Lynch, uh, and you viewed that as your own business. But today, you don't have to. Now, for those persons who are interested in wealth management, I think that it's an open uh, place. I still think the broker dealers offer opportunities because of their uh, platforms. I must admit to you that. The big F part of it uh, is uh, is a venture or concern to me. I think clients are looking for somebody to serve as a fiduciary today. Uh, so you got to kind of keep that in mind as you as you move forward. And there's organizations that can can help you with that. But you've got, I mean, this thing is so huge now. You got the metaverse. You got the technology. You got you got so much going on that there's just so much opportunity. Uh, that's why I say they should look at it really broadly and and then narrow down to kind of where they uh, want to be. I think success is in the offering for them, for those persons who really want it. Uh, it still does not eliminate the need to, to be disciplined, uh, to work hard, uh, to do the things that... Uh, um, you know, others may find difficult. I mean, you got to actually kind of run to those kind of things or, or you know, you, you just have to uh, in order to have success. Now, I do know, Garland, that uh, some Gen Zs and others uh, 
they don't really want all that. This is what yeah. <laughs> it's funny. Uh, it's all of the day. They want to. They want to go to Belize and do things. <laughs> they don't want to do this. But for those who really want to, I think it's an offering. It's there. It can't be denied. Even back in 1979 in Mississippi, it couldn't be denied. So how could it be denied now? And regardless of where you are, it cannot be denied. The only way it's denied is you yourself allow it to be denied. Mm -hmm. You can make it. You can make it work, and, and you owe it to yourself uh, to do that. I tell you what, that's great advice. That's great advice. Ed, oh, we are right at forty minutes. This is good. Yeah, we we are. Um, Gary, um, on behalf of a lot of individuals that look like us, you know, I admired you from afar. Um, didn't get a chance to talk to you when we were both in Atlanta, but had a chance to talk with you on the phone. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you because yeah. you are a trailblazer. Thank you. Are you are someone for a lot of us to look up to and admire? Um, we we appreciate you. We value you because you ran through a lot of walls. That because you ran through those walls, we could walk through the walls. So we thank you for everything that you've done. Continue to enjoy retirement. Um, and do all the things that you enjoy doing, whether it's flying a plane or playing playing some golf all day long. Um, but before we end, um, I would love for you, if you have any parting words that you would like to share some wisdom with anyone that this might land with, um, the stage is yours. Well, I was just uh, thank you, gentlemen, Ed Garland, for taking the time to do this. Uh, what you're doing is very important. And uh, for others to be able to hear this this message. So I, I really appreciate you both uh, putting your time and energy into this. You're giving back. You're throwing a line to someone. Hopefully somebody grabs hold of it and, and pulls it up. But not everybody does this. So I want to commend you both you. Uh, for, for doing this. And you're doing it very well. So thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you. thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. All right, that's, I think that's it. So uh, let me say a couple of parsing words here. Uh, thank you, Ed. Once again, thank you very much, Gary Bridgman, for joining us. Humble words. I hope that many, many people watch this podcast on our social media platforms. Thank you so much to SEM Wealth Management for being the driver behind the technology and support um, mechanisms that Ed and I can have this platform. Uh, once again, we'll be here probably every other Thursday and doing this for about 30 to 45 minutes having fun and bringing some wonderful, wonderful folks onto our show. So with that journey, the financial advisor experience is concluded. Have a great day. Great evening. Thank you.